Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, uh, you had a birthday party this weekend you wanted to give a shout-out to. I ha- Yes, sir, I had a great time. I went to our, our friend Jimmy Valiant, the Boogie Woogie Man, went to his birthday bash uh, in at his Boogie Wrestling Camp, the BWC, in Shawsville, Virginia. Now, if, if someone wanted to find Shawsville, Virginia, what they need to do is go into their Google Maps Type in middle of nowhere. Then when you get to middle of nowhere, you go 50 more miles and you're in Shawsville. And I, I, somebody mentioned that it was God's country. And I think, you know, the reason why is because only God knows where it is. <laughs> Although somehow I found it. But, you know, all kidding aside, uh, you know, Jimmy and his wife, Angel, they are phenomenal people. Uh, I finally got to meet them. They're every bit as nice as I thought they would be. And, and then some... And the the BWC not only is the the, the grounds it's it's a uh, they have a Hall of Fame museum there are so many pictures I mean you, you just about any wrestler you can possibly imagine is, is is on their wall somewhere and they have a ring they have a top notch training school and actually on Sunday besides actually having a birthday party with cake cupcakes and punch they did have a, a full card of wrestling with his you know with Boogie's trainees. And um, let me tell you, these guys left it all in the ring. I was about five feet from ringside, uh, and you, you could hear the chops. I mean, there were a lot of sore chests on Monday morning. I think I even saw Ronnie Garvin in the crowd taking some notes. I mean, that's how good those chops were. So, you know, for anybody who's looking to be a you know a pro wrestler, uh, even a manager, announcer, referee, be, uh, Boogie's Wrestling Camp, that is the place to go. I would highly recommend it. Uh, it's a great story, Benny. You know, uh, it's funny when we had Jimmy on, he talked, uh, obviously, we talked a lot about his time with his brother because wrestling has always been a family business going back to the early days. And uh, like you hear you hear people talk about families, legacies. Well, our guest is a legacy of the business, a family business. Um, her father, uh, assuming you want your legs to, to be safe and in one piece is one of the best names, one of the, one of the most famous names you've ever heard in wrestling. He's come up on the show before. Uh, she's written a book about him called The uh, Hero Matsuda Stories, Samurai Spirit. She is Stephanie Kojima. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you guys. You know, you can't help. I, I made the, the the joking reference, and I've got to start with the story. The The Pro Wrestling Stories had an article on your father called The Man Who Broke Hulk Hogan's Leg. I, I, I know it's probably been done to death, but I'm curious how often that story comes up when people want to talk about your dad. And that story was by Javier, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, often. Yeah, a lot. Because um, that's the, the myth and the legend, and I guess now it's fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's the uh, in in the their world we call it a potato, and it's probably one of the most famous potatoes in wrestling history, right, Benny? Yeah, I mean, to the, to Hulk's credit, though, he did come back. That's that's the one thing I got, yeah. you know, I got I got to hand it to him. Go ahead, Benny. Well, you know, this, and I have not had the chance to read the book yet, Stephanie, but I absolutely intend to because it sounds like a very, you know, I. One of the very first wrestling magazines I ever bought, and I started uh, watching wrestling in 1967, 
Uh, I, I one of the first magazines I bought was Wrestling Review, and one of the first articles I read was a story about your uh, your dad and uh, Danny Hodge, and what like what an epic rivalry they had. And I'm going to ask that question later, but w- in the course of doing my research, I, I, I hopefully this is true that your dad was actually a very good baseball player. Yes, that was, that's true. That was his first love before wrestling. What, he, was that was that something that he ever uh, thought of maybe pursuing after after school? He did when he was in, um, I think he started in junior high school in Yokohama, and he played uh, pitcher and shortstop, I believe. So his first uh, love was baseball, and um, he intended to be a professional baseball player or an engineer. But then he saw wrestling on TV and decided that was his destiny. But he loved baseball. He always did. And even when he was in uh, wrestling, like in um, Peru and Mexico, he would still play baseball for recreation. Nice. So. Well, going going off that, obviously, um, baseball was was huge. Uh, this would be this would have been correct me if I'm wrong with the dates. The late 1950s, uh, when when he transitioned over to to wrestling, what did he ever say or or uh, uh, go into? I know because it's come up a lot. Benny and I always love talking about where it started. Did he ever say what moment or or what caught his eye that brought him to it? Yes, he he said um, he saw. Um, wrestling Ricky Dozan and I think it might have been the Sharp Brothers um, in Japan and on uh, TV in a noodle shop in his neighborhood because people didn't have their own TVs back then um, when I think he was around 17 or 18 senior in high school and um, he just decided right then that would be his path because he wanted to travel the world and he figured he could just take his wrestling trunks and and be a wrestler and travel the world. So then he sought out Ricky Dozan for training. And that was kind of the beginning. And that's what he told me in his in his stories. How Stephanie, how did he uh so he went from Japan to Peru, I think, to United States and then to Mexico, or was the other way around? How what made him go to Peru, I, I guess, first of all? Well, he had a uh, falling out with Ricky Dozan. He, he trained with him and worked um, as a second on a tour. Um, and then he, uh, Ricky Dozan told him he had to make a name for himself in another profession like judo or um, sumo wrestling uh, before he be- could become a uh, professional wrestler. And my dad adamantly uh, disagreed and said he could become a professional wrestler in his own name, and he quit. So then that um, took him three years from that moment to uh, be trained on his own. And he was he suffered a bit, you know, being frustrated by losing his path. And then his mom, um, seeing him suffer and feeling bad for him, told him that contacted a good family friend who an uncle in Lima, Peru. And there was a large Japanese population in Peru um, after World War II, they um, settled there. And uh, so he 
worked and got his uh, visas and papers to leave uh, Japan and ended up going to Lima, Peru and started uh, wrestling there. And he was there, I believe, for about three months. And then he uh, went to Mexico City and wrestled there. So then how did he get to the United States? Who brought him to the U.S.? Um, well, in, um, let me think, Mexico, I think he met, he went to Texas after that. Um, I believe he met, I, I want to say it was Duke that helped him get over to the United States. Duke Kiyomoko? Yeah, I know. I think. But I know Texas was the first American territory that he wrestled in. So then he also trained, I think, if you know, if, if my research proves correct, he did some training with Carl Gotch, who yes, is one true. of the le- le- legit most, you know, respected, they call him hookers, in the history of wrestling. Uh, did, did he learn a lot from Carl Gotch? He did. He went up there um, to Ohio for about uh, three months and uh, trained with him. And uh, he said they, there was woods like in the back of uh, Carl Gotch's house and they would go running and carry each, each other on their backs while they were running and then drop down and do push-ups and, um, and train like that for about an hour and a half. And then they would get in the ring and wrestle. And, oh, and he learned the German suplex from uh, Carl Gotch. Nice. I believe back to Mexico to the state, I believe maybe it was Blackie, Goods, Guzman that found him in uh, Mexico and brought him to uh, Texas. And then once um, dad was in Texas, that's where he met Duke. I think he actually held several uh, tag team titles with Duke. I, I know he held the believe- Florida tag team title several times. Uh, I think even the, like the world version of the tag team title with Duke. Yeah, Duke and Dad were best friends, for sure. You, you talk a lot, and, and we moved from the, the some of the stories, obviously his time, uh, you, you mentioned going through Peru and Japan and Mexico into the United States and the, in the Texas territories. Uh, he He's wrestled under a lot of names. Uh, obviously, some of them, you know, through obviously the, the great Matsuda and Hiro Matsuda, which is the, the one everybody knows him as. Uh, I'm curious, do you know where? Because uh, as far as uh, uh, Japanese wrestlers, do you know where the name Hiro Matsuda came from? Because you figure uh, it, it's it, it, he had some some tweaks to I don't want to say the gimmick that wasn't really a, a as big a thing back then, but. He had some tweaks to the name, but but before settling on Hiromatsu, did you know where like the story of, of how he came to that name? Yes, I do. He he told it's in the book. Um, I believe it's uh, he when he got to Kansas City, Missouri, there's a promoter, um, Gus Paras, I think, that told him uh, he reminded him of his good friend from or wrestler from the 1930s. Marty Matsuda. And so he um, said that he would like to name him Matsuda. And then his first, his birth name is Yasuhiro. And uh, that was too long, of course. So they cut the Yasu off and took the hero. And 
married that with Matsuda. So then that he became Hiro Matsuda. And that's the name that he's had since then. Nice. Um, Stephanie, he was the first Japanese and WA World Heavyweight Champion when he defeated Danny Hodge. And back then, that, that NWA Junior Heavyweight Championship was very, very prestigious. And um, I believe he also did a time limit draw right after he won the championship with the then NWA champion, uh, Luthez, which is phenomenal. So um, yeah. I, I did mention that the, the rivalry with Danny Hodge, who, from my understanding, was a legit tough guy. Uh, can you talk about their rivalry? Um, yeah, he, he talks about it in, in the book when he went to um, Oklahoma. So Danny Hodge um, was one of the, you know, the main cards and um, Hiro Matsuda, dad, was up and coming. So they would wrestle separately, but then uh, talk about each other. Dad would say, you know, I'm going to take on your hero, Danny Hodge, and beat him and get the fans riled up and just build up the um the fight you know and then uh eventually when they did wrestle it was uh they were equally matched and it was a good uh good fight and i know dad respected him and enjoyed well he said you know in the stories that he um enjoyed the rivalry and i think after that um danny came to florida one time and they wrestled in Tampa, and then uh, Dad went back to Oklahoma again, and they did another uh, match there. And so it was. You're right, Benny. It was a big uh, rivalry. And I think so. When when he beat uh, Danny, I think he, uh, your dad was actually, I believe, in the Oklahoma territory. I believe. Uh, I think it was, was called Tri-States uh, under Leroy McGurk, and I, I mean, eventually he settled down in Florida, but. Um, when he won that championship, did he do a lot of traveling? Um, after the first one? Yes. Or, um, I'm not sure. I think, I mean, he stayed in the Oklahoma Territory and worked. And then um, I think from there he went to, he might have came here to Florida. So my, I did, I there's a rest, uh, wrestlingdata.com, which you mm -hmm. can type in anybody's name, and it'll kind of give you the history of all our matches. Now, wrestling is not a complete science, so it's probably missing a bit. But I think you're right, because most of what I saw from him was either uh, Oklahoma, uh, the Florida Territory, where he spent a lot of his, you know, from, from I don't know, maybe the early 70s on. And then um, also uh, many tours of Japan, though. Yes. I know he did work in uh, North Carolina, uh, Tennessee. Um, Kansas City, Missouri, uh, Oklahoma, Texas, and Florida. And then, yeah, I went to Japan, too. I, th I believe those are the main cities he talks about. Okay. Uh, going back uh, a bit, when I did the introduction, we, you, you, and you've mentioned the stories in the book. Yeah. Uh, when, when did your father decide to start writing a, a the story of his life because it is um just such a fascinating perspective from inside the business right um well and i wanted to go into that too now that we're talking about how the stories um came about in um he uh 
1999, I believe it, he came down with uh, colon cancer. And so we, he went through some, you know, treatment and, um, and then, you know, eventually we saw that it wasn't, you know, going to work. And um, uh, so he decided to uh, tell his life stories to uh, me and my sister, because growing up, we were sheltered from the wrestling world. We, I didn't see him wrestle. We were, um, I didn't really know anything about who Hero Matsuda was. I mean, that was just my dad's job, you know? And so he decided to tell us his life stories and um, who Hero Matsuda was and what uh, the wrestling business was. Uh, so we would sit down each night after dinner and he would uh, just, just pick a story and tell us. He's, he went started with his birth and up to his end days dealing with colon cancer. So that's really how the book came about because I, after he died, I um, transcribed the audio tapes I had sort of as therapy, you know, and to be close to him and just to get his words down on paper. So that's uh, where the stories came from. And I had them uh, for a long time and I thought about publishing them, but hit a few roadblocks and just kind of let it go. And then when he got inducted into the, um, Wichita Falls uh, Hall of Fame, and then that same year in the WWE Legacy, um, I decided to dust off the manuscript and um, and try again, you know, because I figured it was now or never. So that's why, you know, 20 years later, the book was published. <laughs> um, but it was. I'm glad it's out there finally, and it's been well received. And it's not only like an inside scoop of his wrestling world, because he does talk about wrestling, but a lot is about his travels and the people he meets, a lot about food, all the different foods he ate and experienced in the different cultures. And uh, so it's really a, an inspiring story about, you know, a young guy from Japan who had a dream to travel the world and who achieved it. And they're all, it's all in his words. I, I just transcribed it directly from his words. So it's like you're, listening, you're hearing him talk to you. It's, mm -hmm. Stephanie, you, know, uh, you mentioned travel. So uh, wrestling in Oklahoma, that geographically, uh, because you know, there are many, many territories back in the day, and some of them were a lot easier on, from a travel perspective. Then others like like the Florida Florida territory was a fairly easy uh, travel territory, but the Oklahoma territory was very very uh, challenging. These these guys put you know a couple of thousand miles a, a week on their car. Did mm -hmm. he mention that as far as the you know it it, it it couldn't be easy wrestling and then getting in your car driving 500 miles to the next town. You're not going to have a lot of time to stop at a restaurant and have a good meal. You're not really even going to have enough time to train. I mean you you know you're grabbing some food on the run. And you're mm -hmm. pretty much going to make, you know, go from one town to the, the other. Did did he talk about that? He does. He talks about the the travel routes and the different cities and driving in the cars with the with the wrestlers, drinking beer in the car after the matches, you know. And um, but I'm pretty sure he trained every day. 
You know, he would wrestle, drive to the next city, go to sleep, find something to eat, go to sleep, wake up the next day, train, you know. So he does talk about the, the different routes that the wrestlers um, traveled. Did, did he travel with anyone in particular on a regular basis? Did he pretty much go by himself? Um, I, I'm not quite sure, but he talks about he traveled with different wrestlers, you know. So I'm, I don't know who. Did he have anybody in particular that he liked to to you know travel with that was maybe you know more compatible with his style you know with his with his lifestyle? It sounds like he was still very strict as far as making sure he got his training in and you know mm-hmm. making sure he ate and things like that. Whether whether you know was there another wrestler maybe that had a similar lifestyle? The only one that comes to mind when he was in Texas traveling, he drove with Duke often, like okay. in the early, in the early days. I think Duke kind of took him under his wing and um, showed him the ropes, you know, in Texas. And ever since then, they were good friends. But um, other than that, nothing comes to mind. So you were you were talking earlier. um, I just want to jump back to it real quick again. The the origin of the book, when you mentioned how you transcribed your father's stories Mm-hmm. We we talk about it a lot on the show that the the characters and I use that term loosely because yeah, the evolution of what a wrestling character is has changed through the decades is really just yourself turned up to eleven. The the positive you mentioned the book being very well received the positive reviews one of the traits that a lot of them have is they reference the the kayfabe almost that the the. Your father was stayed in character when he told the stories. It wasn't, uh, you know, it, for lack of a better description, it wasn't the uh, you know Yushira Kojima telling the story. It was Hiro Matsuda. Like I'm wondering, was that just the way the stories came off, or was that intentional that this is going to be the wrestler telling the story and not the man that was the wrestler? I'd say it's intentional. Everything my dad did was with intention. But when you remind me of what Javier, how um, I met him, because he and why he wrote the story of uh, Hulk Hogan's leg being broken, because he my dad never told that story. He doesn't mention it in the book. And um, he never told me or my sister. So when Javier wrote the the blog, um, he he kind of alluded to he did allude to that that like well he didn't did this really happen because um, you know here Matsuda never mentioned it in the it's not mentioned in the book so I asked my mom about it and she said yes that did happen um, so we got back to Javier and uh, so that was confirmed through my mom but I think he my father told the stories he wanted his daughters to know. So I think um, he might have had that uh, that intention to kind of keep the um, you know he he said what he wanted to say. So, and then also one thing I talked to my mom about, which I found interesting in the early days, uh, she and um, the she said the wrestlers, the good guys and the bad guys, publicly never um, associated with each other. They always kept up the, um, you know, the facade. And then, um, but privately, like they could get together at each other's houses, but it was very important to keep 
the um, truth behind the mat, the rivalries. So, absolutely, kayfabe was serious business back then. Absolutely. Yeah. And then um, another thing I found interesting, and I've learned because I don't really know that much about the wrestling world. I and I, what I've learned is mostly after my dad passed away, and then from him, you know, telling his stories, and then also talking to my mom about it. But when she started, she and he started dating because she would go to the armory in Tampa with her friends. And that's how they met. And um, she had she had to stop going to the shows because the fans would be um, if they knew that she and Hiro Masuda, my dad, were dating, then she could be possibly in danger because the fans were so fanatical, you know. So, um yeah, they. Um, she stopped going to the shows once they were started dating. <laughs> that's that's yeah. The fans fans back then. We we've had a couple of guests on the show, right? Many who have told the stories about cars being vandalized and not being able to go out to restaurants in certain towns because that you just you couldn't you couldn't do that both in character or out. Yeah. There's one story um, that he talks about his cars. This I forget what city it's at, but he said the wrestlers they would hide their cars, and then after the match they would have the um, I don't know some guys bring their cars around, and then they would like sneak out of the match before the fans could get a hold of them. <laughs> so, kind of different different times back then. That's funny. You, you know, obviously, you you went into the the story with with Hulk Hogan. That was in after settling in the Tampa area. Your your father started training uh, in the early 1960s, training wrestlers. There was a period uh, of it was only about two or three years. They the stories go, um, and obviously, I'm sure stories come. You know, depending on who who tells them, uh, that he had students that numbered in the hundreds. And during that time, only four people successfully completed what would be considered your father's training course. And obviously one of them was Hulk Hogan. The other three were, were Paul Orndorff, mm -hmm. uh, Ray, Ray Hernandez, who would go on to res, re, uh, wrestle as Hercules, and B, B. Brian Blair of the Killer Bees. Okay. Uh, among the, the other names that would come later in training, I mean, you have pretty much anybody who worked under your father would go on to a Hall of Fame career at some point or or some success there was really no uh, no way around that when he mm -hmm. what, when he put it into him i'm curious through the stories he told or the narratives or, or things you've heard through your life I, I i hate to use the word favorite but did he ever talk about like a a prodigy a favorite student somebody he used to point to and be like that's the guy i'm glad i trained no, not one in particular they were all his prodigies and and he was very hard um, on, in training them because he knew if they uh, passed his tests and listened to him and learned how to work that they would make it to the top. So that I think he, he was equally proud of all of them. And he never charged. One thing he, he told me was um, he'd never charged any money for the training because um, that way he could be as hard as he wanted on them and he could kick them out at any time if they weren't up to his standards. 
<laughs> so I, I have a I have a comment first, Stephanie, then I have a question. So the comment is I I listened to Lex Luger's uh, I listened to it on audiobooks, and he did mention like I guess that like there was the the training facility was very spartan. It wasn't like an opulent. I mean, it was as no nonsense as you could get. And he did say that your dad was like a very, very tough, you know, no nonsense trainer. And like, I mean, he really wanted to separate the proverbial wheat from the chaff. He only wanted the serious people. Um, and I'm going to get back to that later. But um, question is, and it's so much different now uh, with wrestling. But back then, uh, wrestling, you know, wrestling was very stereotyped. So you had, you know, the Japanese, the Germans and the Russians were always cast as the heels. Okay. Um, so was that something that, like, did your dad ever want to be a baby face or did he kind of just accept? Because he seemed, from all accounts, you know, even though he was very disciplined and very tough, he seems like a very, very nice man. Did he ever want to be a, a crowd favorite? I don't think so. From what he's told me, he, he loved to be hated. And the more people that hated him um, as the, you know, the heel, then the better the draw. And uh, so he really capitalized on being the Japanese wrestler and being the heel. You just mentioned something very interesting because there was another podcast and I forgot who it was, but I meant, I made that comment that these wrestlers, they almost had to be salespeople. Mm-hmm. What, and what I mean by that is they had to sell the fans the idea that they needed to buy a ticket to the next show. And, you know, and if they did that, then the draw was good. And they all got a nice payday. But if the fans didn't come, if they didn't build enough heat, you know, right. they were eating, they were eating, uh, you know, hamburger helper for three weeks in a row. So yeah. that, I mean, that's, that's and your dad was very, very good at drawing heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you look at the, the entire branching career. He mentioned uh, Lex Luger, and and obviously another name attached to your to your father's school. It, it was interesting because you mentioned how he had to to be tough and what he what he meant to him. I mean, back back then, the the wrestling trainers were almost gatekeepers or or guardians of the business. Like you had to go through a good trainer and people knew if you didn't, you wouldn't you wouldn't get hired. You wouldn't work. And it, it kind of came full circle later on as time went went on where you saw more and more names building careers and it kept coming back. And I'm wondering, was that ever uh, something that your father was able to build off of? Uh, or was it, it was, was it kind of a, like you said, where everybody was, was him. It, he didn't start building himself as, as, Oh, you see that the biggest name on television right now, I trained him. See that guy that's selling out that, t- that 30,000 seat arena. I trained him. I'm not saying it as a, as an ego thing. I'm just curious. Was that ever something he was able to build off of the, the success that his students had? Um, no, I think he, it was, uh, a quiet pride in that. I mean, it wasn't a, ever, I mean, in my knowledge of being around him, it wasn't anything he built off of. What? Oh, uh, my husband said, if you're in the business, you knew that Hiro Matsuda trained those guys. But you did mention being a protector. I know he was, um, I talked to mom, said that those guys, they were very secretive and very protective of the business. So that was another reason why he was so hard 
on the newcomers and because that was a way of keeping um protecting the business keeping it tight keeping like you know the only the ones that want to be in the business and true and work hard um were allowed past the gatekeepers as you said <laughs> so so uh, stephanie dan made a very good point a lot of the names that your dad trained you know the the brian blairs the lex Luger, the, the hogan's the great mood is ron simmons all had phenomenal careers, but, mm-hmm. and I, I was, you know, in my research, I was, you know, looking at all the names and the, besides the fact that they achieved tremendous success in wrestling, you really didn't hear much about any of them really causing, you know, they weren't prima donnas, they weren't troublemakers, you know, they weren't, they didn't know show re- shows. So b- besides the, the technical aspects that your dad taught, I'm kind of thinking that he, he did be, you know, he taught beyond that. He had a, he, he must've taught how to respect the business and how to act, you know, and behave yourself. I think so. I think you're right. The type of, uh, work, um, ethic and integrity. Okay. You, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, you, when you started the idea to, to finally get the book out there in 2018, when your father was inducted into the, both the pro wrestling hall of fame and the WWE hall of fame. Uh, I, I'm wondering in, in 1990 at the 30th anniversary show for Antonio Inoki, uh, you had new, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sorry. Uh, J- new Japan pro wrestling introduced mm-hmm. what they call their greatest 18. And it's a specific hall of fame, 18 names. And your father is one of them Oh, okay. as, as, these are these are, you know, uh, Lou Fez, Carl Gotch, with uh, Stan Hansen, Andre the Giant, uh, people that that have come up on the show before as as the greatest. I mean, uh, outside of of really, I can't think of anyone in wrestling history that's more respected as a judge of talent than Inoki has was or has been, I should say. Um, and I'm wondering, it, it's it's not something that comes up very often. If your father ever mentioned his involvement in japan later on obviously he had the success in mexico and the united states um if he ever talked about his time in in japan not, or his involvement with excuse me his involvement with japanese companies um not so much i mean he um not really not he doesn't talk about that too much i mean he mentions it but not anything really in detail and and growing up, I remember him going, you know, going back and forth to Japan. I know he helped out with the visas for the boys, and then, um, but uh, other than that, I'm not sure. Stephanie, I, I believe he won the the junior heavyweight championship in 1964, um, so he would have been, I think, maybe about 27. And I looked, I watched a couple of his matches. I saw him wrestle Bob Orton. I, I, th- I believe who he also might have trained, Bob Orton Jr. in 77. So he would have been 40 there. And another match with Mike Graham in 1981. So he would have been about 44 there. And then I, I saw a match, um, not even a match, but uh, it was in 1987. So he would have been 50. And I guess it was, uh, Lee, well, it was, it was building up to a match with him and Dusty Rhodes. But he uh, put the sleeper hold on Johnny Weaver. And it was one of the best. So, so I don't know if you've ever seen it, Dan, but 
Johnny yes. Weaver sold that thing. I mean, his eyes were bugging out of his head. He's bleeding. Yeah. And you hear David Crockett screaming hysterically for the, for somebody to stop him. So, I mean, here's somebody like now a lot of wrestlers, you know, when they hit that age, I mean, it, like I met Baron Cicluna was one of my very favorite wrestlers in a WWE. So in 1965, he was made eventing against Bruno San Martino at Madison Square Garden by like the early 80s. He was losing pretty much to, to preliminary wrestlers because he was in his early 50s, kind of at the end of his career. But your dad always maintained that high status. And I was just wondering if, you know, why was that? I mean, I, obviously he kept himself in tremendous condition. And I, I think that was a, a function of his, his great discipline. Yeah, I was just going to say that he worked out the same way every single day doing his workout routine. Uh, his whole life, you know, all the way up to in um, to, into his 60s. So I think that's part of the reason why he looked so good then. <laughs> yeah, there were there were stories of, uh, you know, in, in the backs, the locker room, if you will, at some of the later events and, and maybe conventions, not the right word, but some of the later events and conventions your dad was involved in where you said he was in his 60s and he could still bang out 100 push-ups in the locker room at the drop of a hat. Yep, that's true. Yep. His morning routine, he'd get up probably around five, have his uh, green tea, and he would read uh, the newspaper, and he would have his uh, English dictionary and his Japanese dictionary. His, I mean, his English was excellent, but he was always uh, improving, you know, his vocabulary and everything. Um, and then he would um, do his uh, workout, you know, and um, on the back porch in front of the glass door, he'd start doing his squats and then his push-ups and just, um, yeah, everything. So probably about like an hour and a half every day. That That's amazing just because, you know, a lot of, you'll see a lot of people at, you know, 60 years old, 55, 60, they kind of check out at least, you know, like from the physical aspect, uh -huh. I'm 66. I, I've weightlifted since 1987 mm -hmm. and I'll meet people and, you know, I'll find out that they're two years young, younger than me and they look like they could be my, my parent. Uh -huh. So, I mean, I, I really respect somebody that like, no matter what, I mean, it sounds like your dad was into self-improvement, even mm -hmm. like, you know, in, at the point where like he had nothing left to prove. Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, he always had to prove it to himself. Right. So... Yeah, well, eight, you you don't have to be you don't have to be sixty, Benny. I just recently turned thirty eight, and I can't do a hundred push-ups. So, <laughs> you, you know, speaking of of being, you know, Benny mentioned when he was in his fifties, his time on television. I remember your father as as a, I guess I was a teenager back then. Your father was actually the one who introduced the Great Muda when he debuted on, on American television, um, the yeah. channels I had, at least this was his time with Crockett, uh, back, I guess that was late eighties, early nineties in there. And I'm curious because, uh, Benny mentioned earlier his time as the junior NWA junior heavyweight champion. He won his first title from Danny Hodge and mm -hmm. Danny Hodge was very famous in the convention circuit, crushing apples and everything till late, late in life, Florida, was huge and still is for wrestling and conventions and fan events uh -huh. and whatnot. I, 
I didn't really research much of it, uh, that side of it before the show tonight. Was your father big into those? Like, did he go to the autograph signings and the fan events or was he more of a kind of a quiet private man as, as his career wound down? Um, well, not even as his career wound down. I mean, all through his career, he was very private. Um, he liked to do his work and go home and he wasn't, he didn't sign too many autographs that I remember. Um, and yeah, he just, he was very quiet. He did not, I don't think he went to many conventions or the cauliflower. I think he went to one out in Vegas, cauliflower club. Cauliflower alley club. Yeah. Um, but I believe that's it. And I, um, he never really wanted to get, take any honors on because he felt like he hadn't, um, completed his work. So um, I think he was very humble in that aspect, you know, and very quiet about it. And I think that goes back to your your keeping the business secret, too. You know, he didn't talk about it too much. So, Stephanie, I have a question for you now. So what was it like being the daughter of a, you know, an iconic wrestler? I mean, like when you went to school, did your friends know? And I mean, how did that all work out? Well, like I said, we were we were very protected. So, um, and I've, it's funny I've talked to my sister about this too. Um, we like he that was his job, uh, and really like we knew that's what he did. Our friends knew, but it wasn't a thing growing up. Like he was just my dad, and um, yeah. So there was no teasing at school or anything like that? Because, you know, I've I've heard that a lot of, you know, kids of wrestlers got teased about their, their you know, their their parents with their profession. None of that with you then? No, no, not at all. Not that I remember. And he oh. he kept... Um, probably the, afraid that he might show up at school. Maybe. <laughs> you, 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 you probably won, you won a couple of, uh, of games of my dad could beat up your dad as a kid, right. huh? Probably. I think she was yeah. undefeated as far as that went. I know. You know, Benny mentioned being a kid. One of the things growing up, my my dad used to tell me stories when when he was a child in New Jersey, uh, when they would walk to school, they would they would walk past Buddy Rogers house. Buddy Rogers, obviously, the the original nature boy, one of the, the biggest names in the history of wrestling. And everybody in the neighborhood knew like that's Buddy Rogers. And he ran the bar and he was, you know, the neighborhood knew. I mean, it wasn't. They, they didn't because of the respect they had for him. It's not like the fans were parked out front of his house, but people just kind of knew you, you mentioned, obviously you were protected, but, but did, did you can't get away from television? Was there at least an understanding like, Hey, that's, you know, as a f- famous, famous wrestler living in that house right there. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, people knew, but um, my, but I guess they respected that, you know, that my parents kept things, uh, private and uh, they were very uh, careful in uh, their social life and who they were and just to keep our family life quiet you know and, and very um, separate from the business so, so were I, you able to watch him on TV no 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 we didn't and it's funny we didn't even think to ask it just well, with, you know, my dad and his quiet strength and my mom's equally quietly strong and disciplined, like you just didn't go against their wishes. 
you know, my sister and I had uh, the utmost respect and maybe quiet fear of them, you know, but you, no, you don't, you, we just didn't. You mentioned earlier um, not being really knowledgeable or, or really uh, paying attention much to the wrestling. Have you thought it maybe with the book or with interviews later in life, have you gone back and watched any of your, your father's old tapes or any of your father's old stuff that you didn't see as a kid just out of curiosity? Or is that something that you just kind of no, leave, I, leave to the that part of history? No, I have watched him. And actually, I mean, my husband, he never got to meet him, unfortunately, but he's uh, watched a lot of the videos on YouTube. And especially he showed me the one with the sleeper hold that was that you were talking about earlier. Yes. Which was, but yes, watching uh, dad work in the ring, it's, I, it's fascinating and amazing at what uh, incredible technician and how real he makes it look. And just that it's, it's really neat to see him, you know, and what he did and how good he was at it. You, uh, you were mentioning, obviously, one of the stories you, you spoke about earlier was uh, Gotch teaching your father, like, the German suplex and, mm -hmm. and some of the other other techniques. Knowing the story behind the man, does that make it, maybe, I, for lack of a better term, maybe more special when you watch him in the ring? You know, like, you'll see him do something. Hey, he told me the story of where he learned that move. Or Yeah, yeah absolutely. And just hearing how he made it and how his dream came true and what, how much passion he had for wrestling. And, um, I mean, he loved it. That was, I mean, that was his thing, you know, and, um, seeing him wrestle and knowing the backstory definitely makes it really meaningful. One of, one of our very good friends who's been on our podcast a couple of times, Nikita Breshnikov, he wrote a book called When It Was Real. Now, his, uh, his book covers the old WWWF from, you know, for, the, for the decade of the 1970s. And when it was real, I mean, as a fan, I mean, I grew, I grew up in New York. I grew up in Long Island, New York. And that's kind of pretty much was my, my wheelhouse as far as watching. And I, there was no way on a Saturday morning, if wrestling was on, there was no way I was going to miss it. I, I, I tell the joke, if there was a nuclear Holocaust, you know, I would, I would go out during the commercial to check, you know, see what it was, but <laughs> I, otherwise I'm watching my wrestling. And that was one of the things that I really, you know, I noticed, like, like I said, the, one of the first articles I ever read was your dad against Danny Hodge. And mm -hmm. after I read that article, there was two things. I didn't like your dad. Right. He was the heel. And I also was afraid of your dad. So, which means that your dad was very, very good at his job because yeah. he made it real. Exactly. I was just going to say that. He did. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, that's just incredible stories time and time again. I'm I'm curious. I know you, you said you just kind of transcribed everything. As we wrap up here, do you have any stories that might not be in the book that you, you just something you found interesting or something that you thought was, was neat growing up or that you saw? Um, not off the top of my head. One story I love to share that is um, just sums up his character from beginning is when he left Japan, when he went to go to Peru, he told his mother and father and sister 
um, that if he did not succeed in wrestling, that he would never step foot on Japanese soil again and they would never see him again. So that's just a testament to when he was probably 19 years old, the drive and determination and the um, the uh, the grit that he had. And I think that yeah. is why he was so successful. I think he would have been successful in whatever he did just have, because, because of those core values. Yes, yeah. Well, as we wrap up, Benny, you have any uh, final thoughts or questions? Well, I, now I have to read this book, so how do I get it? Oh, on um, Amazon.com. It's the Hero Masuda Stories. You can buy it uh, in print or an ebook. I'm old school. I, I have to have the physical book. Yeah. yeah and then there's, in your hands. there's a Facebook page called the Hero Matsuda Stories that has some photos and um, other. Uh, it, you just click to join the group. Um, and there's the, an Instagram page to the Hero Matsuda Stories. But it, no, Hero Matsuda Wrestler. It's called Hero Matsuda Wrestler. And you said that was Instagram? Instagram. Okay. And, if, and, um, and then the Facebook page, the Hero Matsuda Stories. Uh, but, and the other thing I would like to say, I mean, we asked about um, dad growing up and he was just a, a, an amazing father and family man. And so he was just super loving and affectionate. And um, yeah, he was a great father as well as a, a legendary wrestler. So... Well, just the fact that, you know, here we are, I mean, basically, you know, 40 to 50 years from his heyday, mm -hmm. and we're talking about this man with this great respect and admiration, that speaks volumes for what kind of person he was. He would be very happy that his story is, is still going strong. Absolutely. Yes, so. absolutely. And of course, um, we, we spoke of it earlier, your, your father was also featured in pro, pro wrestling stories. Our friend Javier wrote the story. Hiro Matsuda, The Man Who Broke Hulk Hogan's Leg. The uh, book, as you mentioned, is on Amazon. The Hiro Matsuda Stories, Samurai Spirit, available paperback or for Kindle. Uh, so for Hiro Matsuda, uh, Stephanie Kojima, thank you so much for being here. Uh, well, definitely, Benny will contact you once everything's posted. We'll get the link to the uh, podcast up. Right. And I cannot express, I mean, obviously, anybody who knows anything about wrestling history or has enjoyed a match ever owes something to, to your father and what he means to the business can't Absolutely. be stated enough. So I thank you so much for sharing these stories. And I recommend to everyone out there, look into the book, find, find the information on social media. You, you spoke of the, the Instagram and Facebook pages. Uh, I just, again, I, I you can't, words can't really, it, it, you can't do it justice in the, in the hour time frame to to talk about what your dad meant to the business and I, again i appreciate all your time being here thank you dan thank you benny and thanks for sharing your stories about him and and your love for wrestling and and for his legacy i really appreciate it and absolutely yeah, thank you thank you so much everyone stephanie could you or uh <clears throat> excuse me stephanie Kujima, thank you everybody thank you incredible yeah. You know, how many times, Benny, do you say on the show the word legend is used too often? But, I mean, you look at 
the names. I, I mentioned only a handful of them. Uh, Hulk Hogan, B. Brian Blair, Hercules Hernandez, Bob Orton, Lex Luger, Great Ron Muda, Simmons, I think. Ron too. Simmons. It, every single person. And, and B. Brian Blair told the story to the uh, there's a really good interview with him uh, with the Associated Press in uh, back at, at when uh, Atsuda died where he told the story of it was a two or three year period and only four of them finished the school and all four of them went on to be Hall of Famers and everybody that he touched got better. And he's one of those guys um, that if, you know, unfortunately uh, the, the wrestling business suffered a, a loss recently with, with the passing of Bobby Eaton and everybody talked about Bobby Eaton in that, Anybody he was, you could put Bobby Eaton in a ring with a literal bag of trash and he would get a good match out of it. And everything you, you've seen from Matsuda is the same thing. He brought out the best in everybody, both student person he was in the ring with. And like you said, I mean, you know, in the era of the evil foreigner, people still loved him, you know, which was just uh, how, how, how very rare it is to break that echelon. He he was sinister, and, but that meant that you bought a ticket to the arena to watch him get, you know, in the hopes that he was going to get beat, and that was what it was all about. That that's how they made their money. Yeah, well, I mean, how many times have we had somebody on the show, Jimmy Valiant and others, have said, you know, you didn't, if you didn't sell tickets, you didn't eat, and if promoters didn't think you were going to help them sell tickets, you didn't work. You know, speaking of Bobby Eaton, I believe that he actually he drove a Lincoln Continental. And they found his car and they tarred and feathered it because I yes. believe I think when he, I think it's when they were in Mid-South and they tarred and feathered uh, Magnum T.A. Yes, so the, that fan, is, the fans tarred and feathered his uh, his Lincoln. That, I mean, that that's, is a, that's crazy. But that's that's how fanatical they were. And that's how much they believed in what they watched. That's a true story. Actually, uh, you, you talked about she or excuse me. She talked about moving the cars. One of my favorite stories involves it was Bobby Eaton and Condry at the time. And the Midnight Express were every every time they would they would go to the Coliseum, they'd come out and their cars had been vandalized and whatnot. So they had to start the two of them with Cornette had to start getting a police escort. And the very first time they got a police escort, they came outside at the end of the night and somebody had slashed the tires on the police car because that was the car that drove the Midnight Express to the arena. Well, I mean, Larry Zabisco, didn't he? I think after he turned on Bruno, I think he actually got shot at. I mean, it's it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, we've uh, we've had people on the show talk about like, oh, I'm 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 bleeding. Oh, a fan stabbed me on my way to the ring. Oh well, you know, like, I mean, I'm not I'm not defending that behavior, but the, you know, it, it was. How many times have we said have we mentioned the book when it was real? You know, it was real. <laughs> To, to, to quote the old old uh, internet adage, it, it was still real to them, damn it. And that's like the debate, the, the age-old debate of like, you know, Vince McMahon making WWE national versus, you know, somebody going to the Mid-South Coliseum every Monday night and watching Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee. I think that the, the average fan in Memphis, they had it made back then. I mean, now what are they, they might get it once or twice a year. Yeah, no, you're right. And... I mean, we had the uh, we had the show. Uh, we talked about it, and it was I think it was you, me, and Benny all agreed that maybe wrestling needs you know it it, it needs to be regional again. But we'll see. Um, I mean, it's it's been a hell of a week. Um, I, I'm not one to plug uh, non guest related material, but I will say I mentioned the passing of Bobby Eaton. If anybody gets a chance, uh, 
the it's it's hard to listen to because it's very it's a heartbreaking narrative. Uh, the Jim Cornette experience. Jim Cornette tells some stories and obviously breaks it and loses it a few times. There's a very touching song, uh, a fan written song in there. Uh, I suggest anybody who cares at all about the business to go check that out. Uh, just look into it. It's 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 tough stuff. And and we talked about it with, uh, you know, unfortunately the the greats. You know, where they're at the point in history where life is taken taken away more than it's given us. So that song. I mean, if you're going to listen to to it, make sure you have a box of Kleenex close by because. Uh, it's it's the Don McLean song Vincent Starry Starry Night. You know that was originally mm-hmm. written about Vincent Van Gogh, but this guy wrote it about Bobby Eaton, and it was it was an absolute masterpiece. And immediately after the song, I mean Jim Cornette totally out of character. I mean blubbering like a little kid, but it just you know and Jim, a lot of people think Jim Cornette is a jerk, and probably a lot of the time he acts like one. But I to me that's when he showed his true colors. I mean Bobby Eaton was a genuine friend of his, and yeah. and Jim Cornette was heartbroken about Bobby's passing and, and not just the, 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 the note, but he also, he was commit. He had gave a genuine uh, appreciation for what AEW did in Bobby Eaton's memory. Yeah. yeah uh, he complimented Tony, Tony Khan. Which, yeah. You know, Tony sure Khan, which, and, and, and he even said, he's like, you know, it's nothing against these guys as people because I don't like the, their product, but they're clearly good people right. that appreciate the business. And you figure you've got Tully and Arn, working over there right now though and arn anderson and uh bobby eaton had been were friends for 50 years so you know i mean that's i'm sure arn had a lot to do with hey we have to say something about this guy kind of if you remember uh i know it's a famous bit in um wcw when gorilla monsoon died uh, and, and the news came out during a nitro and bobby heenan just lost it like like you could tell he was broken on tv because you know he here he is working for another company. I can't, I can't quite talk about the WWF, but you know, we, like my, you could see where where the real friendship was. Yes, and absolutely. I mean, it's it's a shame, um, but it's important that, like, uh, obviously, you know, Stephanie had the book uh, about Hiro Matsuda. The stories, it, it's it works like that that are just really important to get the story out there. Yes. Javier's article was great. You know, everybody talks about him breaking Hulk Hogan's leg, but there's so much more to it and the so much more to the business. And it's stories like that. It's books like that. Um, and we've had people on the show before that have talked about the past. And and obviously, Jimmy Valiant, you said he's, you know, half his property is a Hall of Fame. You know, you have to preserve history. And that's that's a tagline of the show. You know, tagline of our show is is celebrating wrestling story past. Right. And without without it, I mean, yes, it's great to talk about, hey, we've got, you know, WrestleMania coming up or I've got this big show like I'm I'm my wife and I just went to a local wrestling show and we got some stuff coming up in the fall. And this, but without without the past, you don't have a future. A lot of us, you know, especially those of us who are older, I mean, we, we go back to those days. You know, I lived through the 70s and, you know, I, I want to read about those stories and I you know, in time, you know, I guess when I go to the great beyond, it won't be as important. But, you know, there's still a big audience and there's still a lot of legends out there who are still alive, but they're getting older. And it's really important to get their stories down on paper. Yeah. And it's it's not just getting it on paper. It's also, you know, it, people take for granted today when you see 
you know, uh, somebody like a, a, a young bucks, for example, or a Chris Jericho, um, someone like a, a mod, some of the modern talent in the WWE where they're, and Xavier Woods is a great example. They're a social media entity almost more than they are a wrestler. And that's not a knock on their wrestling talent, but every story, every life event, every backstage moment is there. It's, it's on YouTube. It's on Instagram. It's on Facebook. It's on Twitter. You know, uh, Stephanie's telling these stories. Her dad was a very private person. If she didn't write this book, these stories never see the light of day in, in an era when kayfabe was everything heels and faces. They, you, you, they didn't pull back the curtain. So now when maybe it's a little more accepted to do that, now they pull back the curtain and now the stories get told. And I think it's more important than ever to tell the stories because once the people who lived them are gone, there's no way to recover that. There's no, there's no Twitter of, of, you know, Hogan talking about his training without without telling the story, we never hear it. Right. I mean, one of one of my favorite uh, Facebook pages is uh, Studio Wrestling, which is I mean, it was a legendary little mini territory in in Pittsburgh. I believe at one point it was owned by Bruno. Um, but I guess what happened was they they reused all the tapes, and there's really like there's very little to nothing left yeah. of that. So all you really have is people's recollections of what happened. Well, I mean, we mentioned earlier, uh, Jim Cornette, he, he calls, you know, he calls the home castle Cornette and he has one of the largest private wrestling collections in the world. And it's not just, hey, look at these, you know, pictures or, or, or memorabilia. It's programs. It's journals. It's, you know, the, the handwritten notes on a script, uh, you know, stuff like I mean, how many people have. The program, Nikita, you mentioned our, our good friend Nikita Brezhnikov. He posts all the time. He posts pictures of programs and ads from, you know, some tiny town in upstate New York. Maybe maybe the crowd is a thousand people that they're lucky. And every single person wrestling that night is a Hall of Famer. You know, you you, you lose some of the greatest moments uh, we, we had uh, just recently. I mean, the beginning of our show uh, for a long until the. Uh, your, your Jimmy Valiant article boosted the numbers. Our most popular show was our interview with George Pontas. And he owned the only known video of Ric Flair versus Buddy Rogers. I mean, you, you have, he got the story out there. You, you really, you know, it's people want that. And now they can get it with books like Stephanie's. And it's a great time to, to really get into all that. And, he, and even with these podcasts, not to toot our own horn, but, you know, people want to hear these stories, even, you know, when Jimmy was on and Jimmy was telling his stories and, you know, Dominic and Ivan Putsky and, you know, all those guys, they, they're, you know, like you said, now the curtains peeled back, but they're, you know, they're telling about their life on the road and it, it, it people want to hear those kind of things. Absolutely. Any final thoughts, Benny? No, I, I thought that was very interesting and I, I definitely want to read the book. I'm I'm a big fan of discipline. I try to do it in my own life. Not that I always succeed, but I mean, this sounds like a man who like, you know, at 60 years old, like I said, you know, most people, you know, they're kind of, you know, sitting on the couch eating, uh, I don't know, whatever, Cheetos and, <laughs> and watching Lifetime or My 600 uh, Pound Life. Oh, you know, no. This guy's still eating, drinking green tea and doing squats. I mean, that's just amazing. And, yeah. you know, re and trying to improve his vocabulary. 
I mean, he, who did he have to? He only did it for himself, but that just speaks volumes about what kind of man he was. Exactly, not just not just a talent, but a good person. Right. Um, and again, the the available on Amazon. The book is the Hero Matsuda Stories: Samurai Spirit, published uh, January of 2019. Uh, Stephanie Kojima, the daughter of Hero Matsuda, great story, great book. Benny is another great show for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. That's me. I'm Dan Spaciano. Have a good night, everyone. And as always, happy wrestling. Good night, folks.